Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we made it again till Friday, and that is a win all in itself. So grab a stool. It's Friday. Let's enjoy it. And we got a double-fisted good martini for you. And Jim, when you're only uh, a couple of weeks uh, ahead of Election Day, these are the kind of stories you want in the good martini. So let's start with Politico, who is reporting that House Democrats are quote-unquote retrenching as Republican money floods the map, which is a fancy headline way of saying Democrats are uh, cutting their losses here and they're going to invest in uh, races they think they have a better chance of winning. And that means you got a lot of liberals very upset because the national Democrats are not pumping money into a number of House races in districts that Biden won pretty handily in 2020, but uh, the the Republicans have the incumbent member of Congress. And so uh, the fact that the Democrats are that pessimistic on some of those races, you would think would be a pretty good sign that things are going to go well, at least on the House side. Uh, The Senate side, of course, is a little bit tougher, uh, but watching the Democrats uh, fight over this is, is kind of fun as well. Meanwhile, on the polling side, uh, Sean Hannity had on uh, Matt Towery of Insider Advantage polling, and uh, he says that, you know, we still have nearly a month to go here. A lot could change, but right now, in a lot of different places, he's seeing the Republicans gaining in ways they hadn't uh, as much until right now. So he thinks we could be seeing the front end of a red wave. Here's how he put it. The Republicans started rising in almost all of these states about two and a half to three weeks ago. And I I don't know if it's going to continue. You never know. But for the moment, what we are seeing in general, and I have a new poll in Arizona coming out tomorrow, so I can't tip my hand on that. But in general, what we're seeing are the Republican candidates in all of these states hanging in there, even against incredible attacks like Herschel Walker has taken in Georgia, for example. Herschel Walker, I think Robert Cayley has his own poll right now showing Herschel's within three or four points. So this is becoming a very interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, even less of that. Let me just say one other thing. These gubernatorial candidates in states like Florida with DeSantis, Georgia with Kemp, they're running even stronger. And it tells me that something's going on. There is a new wave developing. Whether it will hold, you don't know, but it's certainly beginning to develop. So again, Jim, uh, the voters actually are, are the poll that matters, as candidates like to say, especially the ones that are losing. But uh, when it comes to you know kind of reading the indicators, the pollsters are seeing this trend. Insider advantage seems to have pretty reasonable numbers in most of their states. And the Democrats are kind of re-evaluating on the House side and uh, trying to shore up some races they probably thought they had in the bag. Pretty good stuff. You know, when you see House Democrats not having enough money to go around, not having enough money to try to expand the map, knock off maybe some Republican incumbents, although I think this is probably a tough year to do that, really having to prioritize. You're like, ah, God, you know, wait, we keep hearing about how much money is flowing around and corporate America loves Democrats now and lots of wealthy Democrats. Where's all the money going to? Well, now you kind of wonder, well, how much of that money is going to Beto O'Rourke? How much of that money is going to Stacey Abrams? These long, you know, relatively long shot candidates who don't have uh, the best odds, who are always going to face an uphill climb, and who I think have always had a not good height to performance ratio. While we were putting this together, getting ready to tape this, uh, Greg, I went and I looked it up, currently at Open Secrets. Uh, the Lincoln Project has raised $24 million this cycle. Actually, and that's as of June 30th, so they presumably have raised considerably more. 
that's $24 million that's being spent on ads that probably are not, you know, the best use. We've talked in the past about how the Lincoln Project ads were actually not that uh, effective. You look at the, you know, House top Democratic fundraisers, unsurprisingly, you're going to see a lot of, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, big name House Democrats who are in safe districts and who really don't need to worry that much. And most of that money they go to put to the leadership uh, packs and they use to help out other candidates. So that's probably not a bad waste of money. But, you know, AOC has raised $10.6 million and we know she's winning re-election by a safe margin in a very heavily Democratic district. Is that the bet? You know, is, is that a good way of using it? Is AOC spreading it around as much as you can? Uh, you look at the Senate candidates who are raising the most. Warnock is currently the lead with more than 60 million, and this guy needs it. No, no two ways about it. Kelly's the next highest at 52 million. He needs that. The Senate candidate who's raised the third most amount of money this cycle, Greg, is Val Demings down in Florida, who's running against Marco Rubio. It's not like she's got zero chance, but I don't think she has a particularly good chance. And I don't think that, you know, I haven't seen really anybody all that worried, any Republican who's all that worried about Rubio. There was that Washington Post columnist who was talking up her chances last week. Uh, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. I, I This is probably, you know, spending $47 million on Val Deming's, uh Senate race is probably not the best use of that money. Uh, Fetterman is down a few notches at $25 million. Clearly, he needs it. Hassan looked like, in New Hampshire, looked like she was going to have a really tough one. Uh, she's got $25 million. And Catherine Cotes-Mastio, $23 million. Tim Ryan, $21 million. I mean, a lot of Democratic Senate candidates uh, have a lot, really huge fundraising this cycle. And on the one hand, that's great for them. On the other hand, that means other candidates aren't getting that money. And I strongly suspect that House Democrats will be the ones who get the short end of the stick and cannot be as competitive as they want. And the second thing is on the polling, um, every once in a while you see something and you're like, huh, that should be that could be something significant. Yesterday, Chuck Schumer, the, the Marist poll of New York, Chuck Schumer is going to win re-election. There's no two ways about that. But Chuck Schumer was up against a guy who had the perfect name for politics. I believe his full name would be Joseph Pinion, Greg, but he goes by <laughs> Joe. So if you say this guy can't win, hey, that's just Joe Pinion. <laughs> Yeah, no offense to Joe Pinion. I'd say he's a no-name candidate, but actually he's an excellent name candidate. But you know, he's not going to beat Chuck Schumer. But this Marist poll had Schumer up fifty-two percent to thirty-nine percent. Now that's a thirteen-point margin. But I think Schumer won something like you know seventy-some to twenty-some last time around. Now that was six years ago. That was twenty sixteen. It's a presidential year, higher turnout, et cetera, et cetera. But if Chuck Schumer is winning New York by only thirteen points. Then, yeah, there's going to be, first of all, there's a bunch of competitive house races in New York State. And secondly, whew, man, that is going to be, that, that strikes me as the sort of indicator. When a guy who's used to winning by 50 points is down by 13, or is only winning by 13, that's a useful indicator that, yeah, Republicans are fired up. Democrats are, eh, you know, fired up in some places, not in others. And it's just going to be a red wave, probably coast to coast, with one or two exceptions here and there. Well, I certainly hope so. It looks like the momentum is uh, going the right way, but you, you never know what could unfold over the next few weeks. The economy, as we know, is not going to change much. Crime statistics aren't going to change much. Schools aren't going to change much. Uh, so we'll see. Biden, uh, you know, uh, announcing and the government announcing the cost of living adjustment on Social Security, maybe make trying to make the senior citizens a little happier in the last couple of weeks here. But uh, it's, you know, there's an avalanche of factors that don't bode well for the party in power right now, and most of it's their own fault. 
The thing that strikes me, Jim, is that uh, when it comes to spending a finite amount of money, the Democrats are actually capable of making some pretty shrewd decisions. When it's taxpayer dollars, though, there seems to be no end of uh, their lack of fiscal restraint. So mm. it's good to know that they can do it. Uh, just They just choose not to. They just choose never to do it when it's our money. Amazing. All right, on to our uh, bad martini. Actually, no, it's a good martini. It's a good martini. This is uh, out in Arizona. And uh, if you're with us on Monday, on Columbus Day, Rob Long was in for Jim. And we were talking about how Katie Hobbs is a pretty darn weak candidate for uh, the Democrats when it comes to governor of Arizona. Uh, She's not very good at her job uh, in running elections out there. Uh, And uh, she also had this totally cringeworthy answer, which was the main part of our discussion on Monday, about what she's learned from Latinos. And it basically amounts to a little bit of Spanish, a chance to work on her Spanish. Uh, But the the bigger issue now that keeps dogging Katie Hobbs is she won't debate. And it's not just people in Kerry Lake's campaign and in Republican circles who are uh, hounding her on this. Uh, It's kind of people in her own party who are starting to wonder what the point of this is. There was a Project Veritas video out earlier this week talking about how uh, Hobbs doesn't want to debate. They're claiming Kerry Lake is this, you know, this conspiracy theorist and, and it would just be a total waste of time. And there would be a shout down kind of like that first presidential debate. But if you look at the polls, uh, Mark Kelly seems to be up on Blake Masters by a relatively healthy margin in the Senate race. But if you look on the governor's side, uh, while it's uh, fairly close, it's pretty consistently in favor of Kerry Lake. And I think one of the reasons is, is that Katie Hobbs is a terrible candidate and the people of Arizona are realizing that. And the idea that uh, you wouldn't want to debate the person you think is nuts to, uh, you know, to to call out their their craziness and expose it on a debate stage uh, shows that uh, your talking points uh, aren't something you believe as much as you uh, claim to. There's a common theme between our final two martinis of today, and we've heard a lot this cycle about how Republicans nominated less than ideal, or however it was that McConnell had characterized it. You know, you, however you want to characterize it, I point out that they're rookie candidates, tough to elect candidates. You can call them a bunch of turkeys. No, no offense to them at Oz. Um, and they, they've you know, obviously a bunch of them. Oz is looking better. Herschel Walker is not out of it. Even Blake Masters is looking a little bit better lately. Uh, I don't think any, you know, Masters is still behind, but it's now competitive. But look, there were a bunch of candidates who were not natural, experienced people who've done this before, people who knew how to do retail politicking in the Senate races. And that, you know, we'll see how that costs Republicans the Senate. But the perception has been, oh, you know, the Democrats have the choices they wanted. And I think it's safe to question that maybe that's not the way this is shaking out. And Hobbs really looks like, uh, a, a bizarrely cowardly selection. Um, that look, the, ar- the argument from Democrats right now is Trump and his supporters are the foremost threat to American democracy, right? That they are uh, autocracy in waiting. That they are a cult. That they are that they're danger. You know. So if they're that bad, then okay, your job as a Democratic nominee and a potential elected official and potential governor is to stand up to them and to say why they're wrong and convince the public that they're wrong. And so for some reason, all of a sudden, at the last second, Hobbs doesn't want to have anything to do with this. Now, some of this, no doubt, probably has to do with the fact that Lake is better, in fact, arguably much, much better than your typical Trump-supporting Republican candidate this cycle. Longtime news anchor. She's comfortable behind the camera. She's good on the stump. She's just got a lot more charisma than the typical uh, uh, Trump-supporting Republican candidate this cycle. Right. She's just she's just better. 
But you know what? This is the time where you're supposed to eat your Wheaties and dig down deep and go bring out your A game. And Hobbs ran away. <laughs> she just oh, I'm not going to do the debate. And then she wants this one-on-one -on -one interview with a local PBS affiliate. And there's something out there in Arizona called the Citizens Clean Elections Commission. It was established by a ballot initiative back in 1998. And they were so mad about this, they canceled. And they said, no, we're not doing your Q&A with Lake because the Hobbs campaign, quote, had never seriously negotiated over the format of the debate. And in any case, the organization was not willing to accommodate what officials there viewed as an ultimatum from the Secretary of State's team about policing the content of the event. Suck it up and get ready for a, a, a you're like, well, welcome to debate. Welcome to politics. Welcome to running for office. If you can't handle this, you're not going to be able to handle what's going to get thrown at you as governor. So, yeah, it's kind of fascinating to watch this. Democrats suddenly realizing, who did we nominate here? Why are they afraid of getting up on a stage? Why are they afraid of Lake? And, you know, Sandra Kennedy, who's the co-chairwoman of Biden's 2020 campaign in Arizona, told NBC News, quote, if I were a candidate for governor, I would debate and I would want the people of Arizona to know what my platform is. At the worst possible time for Democrats, the top of the ticket in there with, oh, by the way, in a state that's got a really important Senate race out there, is, is losing her nerve and doesn't want to be on a debate stage with her opponent. What does that tell you? Yeah, she's not a good candidate in a number of ways. She's performed poorly uh, in her current role, and uh, she's been very unimpressive as a candidate. And so let's hope that mistakes like this by the Democrats result in uh, wins by Republicans in places where it was perhaps up in the air at best. And Arizona might be one of those places. All right, on to our final martini, our crazy martini here, Jim. And this was nearly the crazy martini yesterday when we had our avalanche of potential topics. But earlier this week, NBC News, I think, had the first face-to-face, in-person interview with John Fetterman since his stroke. He's done interviews, but he's done them all over Zoom or, or whatever platforms online. But this was the first time somebody had actually done it in person. And they uh, talked about uh, how he had to look at the screen and have the, the question transcribed so he could actually process it that way because he still got auditory challenges following the stroke. Uh, this was an NBC reporter named Dasha Burns. And after explaining all that... She explained what she observed just by creating small talk or trying to with Fetterman outside of the formal interview. And here's how that went. And I'll say, Katie, that just in some of the small talk prior to uh, the interview, before the closed captioning was up and running, it did seem that uh, he had a hard time understanding our, our conversations. Well, Jim, now Dasha Burns is pariah number one, I guess, for the Democrats and for the media right now. Uh, somehow we went from John Fetterman's fine, uh, just because he's having trouble processing, he's perfectly healthy, you people are ridiculous, to how dare you say such a thing? This is ableist for someone who's disabled to be characterized like this. And so you had The View going after Dasha Burns, you had uh, all sorts of other reporters, very few people from NBC sticking up for her, which I thought was appalling. And now Giselle Fetterman, the candidate's wife, uh, going off on a rant also on a podcast uh, saying, I don't like saying rage because I think that's a really unhealthy feeling. And when you feel those things, it only harms yourself. But what a disservice that she did not only to my husband, but to anyone facing a disability and working through it. And I don't know how there were not consequences. You shouldn't be able to keep your job, apparently, if you report like that. I mean, there are consequences for folks in these positions who are any of the isms. I mean, she was ableist. That's what she was in her interview. It was appalling to the entire disability community and I think to journalism. So I was shocked 
I'm really still very upset about it. And I think the positive is that it's brought a lot of conversations around accommodations, around rights, around ableism, and on and on it goes. She's appalled, Jim, because uh, Dasha Burns apparently got closer to the truth than the campaign is willing to reveal. Yeah, I mean, the, the message that is coming far and wide, you know, in response to this lone NBC reporter who wrote about what she saw and heard in her interactions with Fetterman in his first real interview in person has been, if you are a reporter and you report something that could hurt the chances of a Democrat winning close to an election, you are the enemy and you will be treated like the enemy and you will be, you know, Giselle Fetterman literally is saying these networks have to take accountability, right? Where is your training? It was appalling to see. And I haven't heard an apology. It hasn't come. You know, like, I mean, my good, you know, like she, they like the level of entitlement, right? Of, of the campaign expecting, you know, how dare you write something critical about our candidate, about the candidate? And, you know, look, wives standing up for their husbands, fine. Good God bless her. I'm sure everybody, you know, a lot of people feel the same way. But you know, to, I, I kind of am marveling about this because why are we in this situation? Why, how did we end up in this situation? Well, what happened was is that Fetterman had a stroke on May 13th. Okay, Now, for perspective, that is the Friday before the Tuesday primary in the state of Pennsylvania. Now, obviously, if he goes to the hospital, they realize he's having a stroke. No statement comes out until Sunday, right? And then it says, you know, it's a statement from him. He's not on camera. Nobody can see him. The statement is, quote, the good news is I'm feeling much better. And the doctors tell me I didn't suffer any cognitive damage. I'm well on my way to a full recovery. Bullcrap. Okay. That's problem one. Then five hours before the polls close on Tuesday, right? We are now Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you know, arguably four or five days after the stroke, they announce he's having surgery. Quote, it should be a short procedure and will help protect his heart and address the underlying cause of his stroke, atrial fibrillation, by regulating his heart rate. Fetterman, who was well ahead in the polls, wins the primary. On primary night, his wife, Giselle, speaks on his behalf and characterizes it as he had a little hiccup. That's not really an accurate way of characterizing it at all, right? Later on, Fetterman says this is life-threatening, that he could have died, okay? In June, they release a letter from his doctor that says Fetterman was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heartbeat, and a decreased heart pump way back in 2017. And after that appointment, he's, you know, they gave him medication, which he did filled once and then never kept taking the impatient. And Greg, he never went to see a doctor for five years. I'm not the healthiest guy in the world, but I know if you're a middle-aged man, you're got, supposed to go to the doctor regularly. Not and the last next time you saw the doctor was after he had the stroke, right? That's real. He's lucky to be alive, and thank God he's alive. But you look at all this, and you're like, oh wait, he hasn't been honest about any of this stuff until it was long after it was too late. Democrats are in this mess because he and his campaign were not honest about his condition when it mattered the most. When Democrats could have considered other options to run for the Senate, and if Democrat if Democratic primary voters knew how, maybe, maybe they would have nominated Fetterman again, or maybe they would have said, you know what, this guy Connor Lamb, this guy Malcolm Kenyatta, let's go with those guys. I don't know. We, we're never going to know because they weren't honest with them. And when you see Pennsylvania Democrats freaking out about this. One of the reasons they're freaking out about this when they say, oh, Fetterman's doing fine, is that Fetterman and his campaign already lied about this. At minimum, a lie of omission, in all likelihood, dramatically underplaying the severity of his health condition. 
Now, again, if everybody knew at this, but keep in mind, you know, Connor Lamb and Malcolm Kenyatta, do you think they would vote any differently than Fetterman in the Senate? Probably not. Probably about 99% of the time, they're going to vote with the Democratic Party. You're, you're not getting this enormously different. John Fetterman chose to act as if he was an irreplaceable man, and he was not. And if Connor Lamb or Kenyatta were the nominee, there's a really good chance that, that minimum, I don't think they'd be doing any worse than Fetterman. And they'd probably be doing better because they wouldn't have this issue over their head. So in the end, why are they in this mess? Because of Fetterman and Giselle Fetterman and the Fetterman campaign. That's where this problem starts with. Stop scapegoating an NBC reporter because all she did was report what she saw and heard while meeting with the candidate. If the Republican primary had gone slightly differently, I think the, the polling numbers would be better for Republicans <laughs> right now. But uh, maybe both parties have some primary soul searching to do. But uh, in the meantime, we've got a very tight race that could decide the balance of power in, in the United States Senate. So if you're thinking, why are these guys talking about Pennsylvania so much? That's why. Uh, yeah, this, is, this is one of those key races that's really going to have a big impact on what happens in this country over the next couple of years. I mean, it could come down to that. And the debate is October 25th, very late in the cycle. But I went back and I checked. She, you know, will have some people have voted by October 25th. Yeah, probably not enough to make a difference. Uh, and obviously the people who vote early are usually pretty committed to one party or the other. So I don't think you're going to see a lot of people who vote for Fetterman then watch the debate and say, oh my God, he's he's drooling on himself. He's terrible. I, I wish I could change my vote. You know, if you're, if you're nervous about it, don't vote. <laughs> don't vote that early. You still have plenty of time after that debate, October 25th. Um, but like, one of two things are going to happen. Either Fetterman's going to go out there and he's going to look fine. And everybody's going to say, okay, well, that was much ado about nothing. He's going to be able to handle the job. Or he's not going to look fine. And I think a lot of people are going to say, oh, oh, he really is, uh, you know, got a lot of recovery to go. Maybe this is not a guy who can handle the job of being in the Senate. Well, apparently he's talked to Rolling Stone, Fetterman has, and he thinks it's bizarre and surreal, I guess is his word, that anyone would make an issue uh, out of the whole NBC thing and, and, and whether he's capable of uh, functioning. But the uh, Rolling Stone article also says... That the Fetterman campaign released a letter from his cardiologist in June that attested to his fitness for the Senate, provided he takes care of himself and continues to take his meds. Quote, it has otherwise released no further medical records and has not allowed reporters to speak with his doctors. So mm -hmm. if transparency is your goal in Pennsylvania, you're not getting it with the John Fetterman campaign. That's the, like if, if he was doing fine, they'd be releasing all this stuff. If they were doing fine, if he was doing fine, they'd have his doctor talking on camera. Yeah. I, I, you know, oh, by the way, you know, like you know, people say, oh, what about privacy? Look, when you run for office, you give up a certain amount of your privacy, particularly for a doctor's office. And yeah, no, I didn't like it when Trump had his, you know, the guy who looked like Doc Brown from Back to the Future <laughs> writing that letter saying, you'd be the most healthy person of all time. You know, uh, you think back to the example of Paul Songus, you think back to Woodrow Wilson, uh, you think back to all kinds of cases throughout history. I think if you want a position of political power over government, particularly the presidency, but I think the Senate counts as well, then you have to be upfront about your health conditions. And no, I don't like uh, uh, Dianne Feinstein. We've talked about Grassley and how he keeps doing you know, push-up contests as a sign that he's physically doing fine. We've talked about Biden. I think you have an obligation. You have a duty to be honest with the public about the state of your health. Because here's the thing, you can only cover it up for so long. Sooner or later, the body wins. Sooner or later, the body gets to show this off, and we will probably have some more answers come October 25th. No, we will be watching. So, Jim, on that note, uh, you get to watch everything next week while I get to go on vacation. So <laughs> enjoy enjoy that, and uh, I'll see you a week from Monday. Uh, enjoy, Greg. Lucky you. <laughs> Chad Benson will be here in my place all of next week, but uh, I'm sure you guys will have 
plenty of fodder. It seems to be coming fast and furious these days. Uh, he's Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, and please tell a friend about us as well. We always appreciate that. Thank you also for your five-star ratings, your kind reviews. They are a huge help, so please keep them coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Launch Podcast. Go out and buy Jim's new book, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Friday, and please join Jim and Chad on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey guys, we know there's so much going on in the news, but don't worry because we're here to talk about all the things. Democrats are scared to debate their Republican counterparts as midterms approach and BLM is going down after celebrities ask for their money back and Kanye West creates a t-shirt with an opposing slogan. Hey, it's the Chicks here from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.